0: We are continuing a series called Multi-Generational. And if you're brand new to um, North, a special welcome to you. My name is Tyler. We'd love to meet you uh, after the service in our front lobby at the New Year Station. Uh, we'll connect with some other leaders and we just wanna hear your story of what brings you through our doors. This series, Multi-Generational, has two big ideas for us. Uh, the first idea is this, is that we felt that it was necessary to have a series about understanding our part in the bigger picture of God's purpose. And we need to strengthen the generational bond between an older generation and a younger generation. The second thing about this series is that we wanna focus on uh, elevating our view to understand that God is at work among us. And he's not just the God of a single purpose or a single generation, but he's the God of generations. And so just, just a quick note on that first point, why we want to strengthen uh, the bond or the connection, the partnership between the generations. This impacts us both as a church community, but it also comes to your doorstep at home in, in a couple of different ways. As far as the church, uh, Barna put out a study that highlighted a, a couple of realities about leadership development. Uh, they found note over the last several years that the average age for a pastor is 52 years old, and the average age for a pastor to retire is 68. Now that's not a problem uh, in regards to, we have leaders who are too old. I think if you're 60, 70, 80, you still have plenty left in the tank to give. Everybody 70 plus says, amen. There's still plenty to give. That's not the challenge. The challenge or the problem with this is what they're seeing is, is that the time for a pastor to retire and pass the baton on, he has no one to pass it back to. That there's, there's, there's a, a drying up of the leadership pipeline and, and we're seeing that in a number of ways. Barna in their study had several statements to agree or disagree to And one of the statements was this, uh, do you agree or disagree? My church uh, puts a significant priority around training and leadership development for the next generation leader. And as you can see in 2015, that number was 22% strongly agreeing with that statement and 47% somewhat agreeing with that statement. So we had about a 69, 70% agreement that development is happening. But in 2022, we see that drop from 22% to 14 and from 47% to So we're seeing a a, a failure of the older generation and preparing the next generation because life gets in the way. All the parents say, Amen. We, Or do do I want to raise healthy, strong leaders in my kids? Absolutely. But then life happens. And it's like, when do we have time to, to do that exactly? Bringing it into our home, though, what we're also seeing, I think Greg made reference to this in week one, that we're seeing young adults are finding themselves far more likely when it comes to life problems and life questions and challenges that they're going to ask their peers or even online forums for life advice before defaulting to their parents. So it's not that your kids aren't talking to you about life issues. It's just that they've talked to Joey, 15 year old down the street before they got to you. And I love Joey, but his depth of life and how it works and the matters of life, probably not his strong suit at the moment. And so what we're seeing here is that if the older generation is failing to prepare a next generation, the younger generation is uh, failing to receive from that generation. And so we find a need that we have, uh, that is we need to strengthen the partnership of the generations because God calls us to be a multi-generational people. The second thing, as I said, though, is we want to elevate our view to the grand purpose of what God is doing in us and among us, through us and well after us. He revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 34, verses five to seven. He said to Moses, I am Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate one slow to anger and abounding in love, maintaining love to thousands. And I'm remembering the sins of children and their parents to the third and fourth generation. What he means by that is he's saying, there's not an injustice that I do not see, that I do not give an account for. I weigh every single deed that comes from man, I am the God who's not just the God who's uh, uh, whispering in your ear, like Elijah, where he's whispering to Elijah. He's not in the storms, but he's in the whisper. He's close, he's intimate, but he's also the God who holds the universe. And what we have to recognize is that there's a call for us to understand our life purpose as an individual, but our purpose is tethered and, tethered and connected and it held intention to his grand purpose. Oftentimes we are so not aware about what God is doing. We don't understand the circumstances of our lives and the challenges that we face. And it's because God is not just focusing on your purpose, but all the purposes formulated under his purpose. And and what I want to show us today is, as we get into the scripture, I want to look at the genealogy. I want to look at the generations that lead up from David to Jesus. And I want us to look at these case study moments where the generations did a phenomenal job of connecting and partnering together and also the tragedies that came when they failed to do so. If you want to understand your life purpose, if you want to understand how to fulfill your life purpose, then it must be tethered and connected to his purpose. And what we're going to see in the scriptures is where people fail to connect and partner generationally. They failed to understand his grand purpose. And in so doing, they failed to understand their own purpose. I think a great example of this is found in Ecclesiastes Solomon, who's uh, the third king in Israel's history. He, he writes several books, Solomon, and many of them make their way into the scriptures. He's the one who writes Song of Solomon. It's said to believe that he wrote that in his early 20s and 30s, writing about romance and love. And in his 40s and 50s, the midway of life, he writes Proverbs and talks about the wisdom that he is learning about life as he experiences. But Ecclesiastes is special. It's believed that he wrote this well into his years, looking at life in the rear view. And this is what the man who had all wisdom and knowledge more than any other human being, And this is the man who built up a strong fortune and incredible kingdom. There was none like him before him or after him is what the scripture says. And this is what Solomon had to write as he looks back at his incredible life filled with pleasure and strength. He says this. So I hated life. Uh Uh-oh. Because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. I hated all things I had toiled for under the sun. Why is that, Solomon? Because I must lead them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether if that person will be wise or foolish, yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort, skill under the sun. This, too, is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun for a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, skill, and then they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. I don't know if we've ever asked this, but does an older generation ever look at their life and go, I have to hand it off to who? Think about Solomon for a moment. Solomon is the wisest man on earth. Which means by definition, every time he walks into the room, everybody in the room is dumber than him. Sila, <laughs> And so he goes, anything that I build up, anything that I have, I must hand off to someone else and their hands are not as strong as mine. They're going to ruin what I have built. Meaningless and a chasing after the wind. What is the point? And this is a man who doesn't realize that his life is not about him. As he's discovering and he's building up towards his purpose, he's disconnected and untethered him, his purpose to the purpose in the big picture of God. And he's going, what's the point of building up my wealth, my resources, my fortune, and then to hand it off to somebody who didn't do the work, who's going to mess it up. And it's because he doesn't understand God is the God of generations. You build up your life to give it to not another person, but to the purpose of God. And so we have to understand the God of generations if we're going to understand partnering and multi-generation. Does that make sense? So, so here's what I want us to do. I, I want us to look at the, the, the history of kings in Israel's um, past. But before I get to the kings and the princes of old, I actually don't want to start with a king. I want to start with a woman named Hannah because Hannah was a very special person, not because she had status like Solomon, but because she had a prayer to the Lord after she experienced God moving incredible power when her life and, and her circumstances were nothing but misfortune. I, I want to look at um, Hannah and I want to look at her counterpart or her enemy, Penina, which if you're going to be named Hannah and have an arch nemesis, Penina is a great one. Uh, it just sounds like your nemesis. It's just It sounds like I'm making it up. It's a true name. Uh, Panita, she was a wicked and prideful woman. And this is why she was so, Hannah is, we're we're catching Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter one. She is uh, in that culture common to be married uh, for a man to have multiple wives. So Hannah is married to the same man that Panita is married to. And Panita has uh, children. Hannah is uh, going through infertility and unable to have any kids. And the reason Panita is so evil is that she goes out of her way to mock, to ridicule and provoke Hannah on this very issue. Anybody who's ever walked through infertility, you know how tender of a subject this could be. Can you imagine not only if somebody is flaunting their kids in front of you on purpose, but then they're going out of the way to provoke you in this very subject. A cruel, cruel woman. This leads Hannah to go to the temple and she begins to sob and pray to the Lord. And she says, Lord, if you'll give me a child, I will give that child back to you. The way that you demonstrate your love to me, I will demonstrate it back to you. Would you please give me a child? She is sobbing and the high priest comes out to ask her what's going on. So Hannah uh, responds to Eli, who's the high priest, and she tells him the story. She tells him what's going on at home. And he says, the Lord sees your prayers. He sees your, your humility and he's going to, to grant your request. And so lo and behold, she has a son, his name is Samuel. He not only becomes a priest in the temple, but he eventually becomes a prophet to the nation. And we'll talk about Samuel briefly in just a moment. But what I wanna do is I wanna look at 1 Samuel chapter 2. I wanna look at the prayer that Hannah has as she gives this prophetic praise to the Lord and testifies of what the Lord has done for her. So let's turn there, it's up on the slides. This is what she says. This is just a small part of it because there was so much, but she circles around three main topics. I just want to read this, this of what she wrote down. She says this, there is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows and by him deeds are weighed. Nothing gets by him. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. It is not the strength that one prevails. um, Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The most high will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. If you could summarize uh, Hannah's prayer, commentators would say there were three things that she highlighted here. She says this, I've learned this to be true after my experience, that God will reject the proud and he will exalt the humble. He will always, even if humanity is incredibly evil, he is always doing work and the work that he is doing is good. And then she begins to prophesy about a bigger picture. She begins to talk about a messianic promise. She talks about a king. Before there's kings in Israel, she whispers about a king who's coming to bring salvation. She whispers of Jesus, not even realizing it. She thinks she's in a small picture with her and Penina. And what God is doing is something far greater. And when she discovers the ways of God and how God works, God sweeps her up into a bigger picture and into a bigger purpose. So what I wanna do is I want us to look through the generations, but what I wanna highlight is the fact that those three elements, that God is exalting the humble, that he is always doing good and that a Messiah is coming. These truths are whispered throughout the generations that Hannah began to prophesy of a reality that she did not realize. And this is why testimonies at Northlands are so important. The reason testimonies matter, the reason that we talk about them so much is because we want to hear from you. What do you know, like Hannah, about the ways of God? We break testimonies up in three categories. We wanna know what was the problem? What has you crying on the steps of the temple, praying to God, God, would you see my plight? Would you see what's going on in my life? Would you heal me? Then we wanna hear the miraculous. How did God move in your life? But we're not just the people who marvel at God's miracles. We love his miracles, but that's not why we share testimonies. The reason we share testimonies is number three. We wanna go in light of what you now have experienced with God and what you've encountered with God. What do you now know to be true about God and his ways? Testify about who he is. Because those who discover the ways of God, what he likes, what he dislikes, what he rejects, what he holds up, the way in which he speaks. Those are the people who get swept up into the grand purposes of God. This is why we must testify because we testify to pass down these truths to the generations. And you're gonna see as these testimonies go through the generations where they are held up, we are seeing men doing good and righteousness in the land and where they are forgotten, wickedness comes into the nation. So I want us to go to uh, the first set of Kings. I want us to go to Saul and David as a case study. Just briefly, if I could hold up these men as a bio, Uh, Saul was known to be proud. He continually rebels against God in his ministry and in his kingship, and he dishonors God's words. When Samuel, who's the prophet, Hannah's son, she installs Saul and he uh, ends up installing David. Samuel uh, anoints both of these men at different times. When he anoints Saul, Saul is kingly by every definition. He looks the part, he's charismatic, he's gifted. He knows how to draw a crowd and he knows how to fight. He's a man's man. It literally says in the scriptures, he, he was a head taller than everybody else in the crowd. So, so Samuel could easily pick him out and go, that's the guy the Lord wants to anoint. And Saul's the first king. And then we see David, who's not kingly. He's young, he's ruddy, he's, he, he's a, a young man. He doesn't look kingly, he looks lowly. But David is humble before God, not perfect, But when he sins, he repents and he continually finds ways to submit himself to God and to honor the words of God. These two men are a prophetic whisper of Hannah's prayer. Do you see it? God will reject the proud and he will exalt the humble. He chooses to work with men and women who show humility in their works. Forget about for a moment what is your life purpose and more about how do you operate in your life? Are you humble? It says that Samuel uh, went to Saul at the end of his time. And he says that God is taking the throne away from you. He is rejecting you and he is giving it to someone better. What he meant was not God loves David more. It's that God loves David's heart more. And he's going to have a king that's after his heart. And and so, so what we see is we see that David continually through his ministry, again, not perfect, but he continually finds ways to walk in humility before God. And as he walks in humility, well, let me just say this, as we talk about, about passing down to the next generation, I have to ask the question, what is it that you value? What, is, what are the values that are being pre- impressed upon your kids? I, this is such a tricky thing, because as I said, we're so busy about going through life that we never work on our life if you look at your calendar and you looked at your checkbook and you looked at the way in which you format your kids to flow through their day, are you focused far more on developing them in skills and charisma and giftedness or are you taking the slow time to build in humility? We're worried about them getting in the right schools, getting the right grades, being the right extracurricular activities, getting to the right college, preparing them for the right career. It's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. But David, it says that David led with skillful hands and integrity of heart. We need to have both. And if we're gonna emphasize something in our children's life, if there's a a value system that we're gonna pass down, we need to start with humility and build from there, not the other way around. So uh, we go to David and Solomon. Now, David and Solomon, for me, this is the highlight of the morning because if there's a generation that partnered together well, it's these two in a specific moment. I, I wanna I want to zoom out for a moment in David's life. And I want us to look at uh, 2 Samuel chapter 23, David is on his deathbed. And I don't know about you, but if you could picture for a moment or before we get to the deathbed, let me just say this. 2 Samuel seven, David in his humility, he says, I want to build God a house because it's not right that he is in a tent and I'm in a palace. And as we talk about Hannah whispering through the generations of Messiah's coming, God sees David's humility in his heart. And he says, you know what? I love that heart, David, but I don't need a house. Here's what I'm going to do instead, because I love that heart. Here's the promise that he had in 2 Samuel chapter seven. It says this, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you, meaning David. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offsprings to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house uh, for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And then God says this, I will be his father and he will be my son. David thinks that he's talking about Solomon coming in and stepping into the throne after David dies and God's going, yep, I'm talking about Solomon, but I'm also whispering about another. A Messiah is coming. David thinks that God promised him a dynasty in his name and he did, but more than that, he's promising a Messiah for the people and for the generations. And so David, now we zoom out to David's deathbed, chapter 23, I just wanna read two verses from this excerpt and, and put yourself for a moment in David's life. He's lived a life, it's been an incredible one. He's God's man. He's made mistakes though. He's had affairs. He's murdered people. He's been a man of war. It's been a tough life for David. It's been filled with turmoil at all, at all different turns. And now he's looking at his life and he's looking in his son's eyes, Solomon. If you were in David's seat, what would you tell your son in that moment? What would be most important to you in that time? He's not just stepping into becoming a man in his own right without you there, but he's also stepping into being a king for a nation. What would you share with him? And as David ponders his life, he says this to Solomon. He said, the God of Israel spoke. The rock of Israel said to me, Solomon, when one rules over people in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of God, he is like the light of a morning at sunrise or a cloudless morning, like the brightness after the rain that brings grass from the earth. He says, Solomon, I have lived an incredible life filled with moments of pleasure and satisfaction on the highs of life. And I have lived in anguish, but can I tell you whether it's in the highs of uh, highs of life or the valleys of life, here is what I've learned to be true. Those who do right by God's standards and live righteously. Those who humble themselves before God, Hannah's prayer. This is what I have found. The way in which they lead people brings, uh, brings blessing to the people and it honors God. When he talks about, you're like the sunrise. I think about, I think about the, uh, the, the phrase, his mercies are new every morning. David goes, Solomon, when you lead with righteousness and you lead in humility, you are like new mercies for the people that are under your charge. Amen. He's like the sun on a cloudless day. Solomon, when you lead people in humility and the fear of God, you give vision and clarity with no obstacles in your way. You give people hope for the future that you are leading them into. Solomon, when you, when you lead in this way, you are like the rain that makes grass grow up. You make people bigger. You make them believe in something bigger than themselves and you help them grow into those things. Solomon, if I could give you one thing, lead God's people with humility because he'll exalt those who are humble. And we see in Solomon's life that he takes those words of his father's heart. If if I could say that's how a generation should hand off to the next generation, it should be that. Are we passing down the wealth of man or are we passing down the wisdom of God? Nothing wrong with the wealth of man, but that as Solomon said, will be given over to people who will spoil it and burn it. But these eternal truths, they echo through the generations and God is faithful to see those words continually grow out. Solomon takes these words and when when he steps into the throne, God comes to him and says, I had a covenant with your father, David. I'm going to give you a request. You tell me what you want and it's yours. And Solomon hears his father's words in the back of his mind. And listen to the humility of what he says as he he hears this request from God. This is what Solomon prayed. He said, you have shown great kindness to your servant, my father, David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. He acknowledged my father did it well. I want to honor him for what he did. And then listen to his humility, but I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Not because he was an actual child, he was a young man in his own right, but he goes for the task at hand, I am not equipped for this thing. And then he says this, listen to the, uh, the humility here that was not in Ecclesiastes. He says, so give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. Solomon's heart was, I recognize this is your throne. I am your servant. These are your people. Would you help me here? Those who humble themselves before God will be exalted. And God says, I see that heart, just like your father, David. I'm gonna bless that. And not only am I gonna give you the wisdom to govern these people, I'm gonna give you the fortune. I'm gonna give you peace in your time. And I'm going to make you one of the greatest Kings in the history of the nation. What is it that we are passing down to the next generation? you can pass down anything from your house. Might I suggest to you, not just the wealth of man, but the wisdom of God, because it will serve them well. I wanna look at Solomon and Rehoboam and we'll talk about how the wheels fall off here. (laughs) Solomon's life is broken up into a couple different categories, but kind of broad strokes, they say the first part of Solomon's life, he was like Moses, a liberator for the people. But in the back half of his life, he resembled far more Pharaoh in Egypt than Moses, because what ends up happening is he ends up giving his heart away. It's no longer submitted to the Lord, but he gives it to many wives and to many concubines. Solomon in his lifetime has over 700 wives and 300 concubines. He gives his heart away to over a thousand women and sexual appetite and perversion. And by doing that, they give his heart away to the idols that come from their nation. And so because Solomon tolerates their idols, they begin to wreak havoc in the nation that God has given them. And so here, here's what's happening now. Now, all of this is happening. Solomon is worshiping false gods, including one that is considered an abomination called Molech who offers, it requires child sacrifices. So it's not said explicitly that, that Solomon sacrifices one of his child's to this God, but he allows sa- children's sacrifices to happen in the nation while he's king. He also reinstitutes slavery, which hadn't been seen since Egypt. So Solomon is this harsh taskmaster. He's, he's becoming a cruel leader because his heart has been warped and hardened against God. And you know who's watching? Rehoboam. And so Rehoboam looks at his father, looks at the way he's leading, looks how he handles relationships with women, looks how he's handling his relationship with God's. And he goes, you know what? I'm going to do even better than him. And he ends up having a disdain for the previous generation and his father. And he says to himself, I'm going to be better than Solomon. And nobody was better than Solomon because he was the wisest and the richest, but something in Rehoboam's heart going, I'm not going to live in your shadow, old man. And so this is what happens uh, to Rehoboam. I I just want to read an account. Uh, The people come to Rehoboam as he sits on the throne and they say, Solomon was a harsh taskmaster. His yoke was incredibly heavy. Would you lighten the load on us? Would you make it easier? Not like your father, Solomon. And he says, I want you to uh, go away for three days and come back to me with that request. Let me have time to think about it. And this is where we pick up the story. It says, then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime, the the older generation. And he asked, how would you advise me to answer these people? He asked and they replied, if today you will be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servant. But Rehoboam rejected the advice of the elders gave, uh, that they gave him and consulted the young men who he had grown up with and uh, were serving him. He asked Joey, the 15 year old down the street, <laughs> he asked them, what is your advice? How would you answer these people who say to me, lighten the yoke of your father that your father put on us? And the young men who had grown up with him replied, these are the people, uh, well, this is what you should say, the people. Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yokes light. That's the request. He says, tell them this though. The, pe- the young men t- say, tell them this. Now tell them my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke and I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips and I will scourge you with scorpions. The young men's advice to Solomon was, you need to prove yourself as a king. Don't live in Solomon's shadow. You tell them that my little finger is twice the man that my father ever will be. With a disdain in his heart, he looks at the previous generation and he goes, I'm not going to be in your shadow anymore because what Solomon passed down was not wisdom from God, but idolatry and it wreaked havoc on Rehoboam. We are not held accountable as parents for the outcome of our children. The, the blood on Rehoboam's head and he, and he had a tragic end. he did evil in the sight of God and his kingdom was split in two. We are not held accountable for our children's outcomes. Ray of blood was on his head, not on Solomon's. But what our kids are watching and what we are held accountable is the way in which we instruct them and the way in which we model for them how we walk with God. Uh, when we look at how, what we instruct them, uh, I, I have several friends of mine um, And we talk about the relationship we have with our fathers. If we have good relationships with our fathers and they were, they were Christian men who humbled themselves before God, we all have a single memory, different, uh, different um, uh, scenarios, but roughly the same idea. We can tell stories and tell me if this has been a part of your story, if you grew up in a a Christian household, we have moments where we woke up in the early morning when the rest of the house is asleep and we find our dad on his knees praying before God or on the recliner reading his, his Bible or at the coffee table, sipping coffee, while reading his scriptures. Our, our kids are going to watch us and there's words that we're going to say and things that we give to them, but more than anything, the way in which we model humility or pride, they're gonna catch on to. What are you instructing your kids in? what are you modeling for them? And what would your kids say? And they said, this is what I know to be true about my parents. This is what matters most to them. It's not about the words we teach them. It's about the words that we teach them and the way in which we live out those words. Yes, yeah, still with me. All right, we got time. Uh, now the train wheels really come off, Manessa and Josiah. Um, so what happens? Rehoboam. Uh, because God had a covenant with David and he said, said, I'm not going to destroy Solomon's kingdom, but because of Solomon's wickedness, I'm going to split the kingdom in half in his son's generation, Rehoboam's generation. And so Rehoboam, because he was a harsh taskmaster, far harder than Solomon ever was, a rebellion breaks out in the nation and a, a man named Jeroboam, who's just as wicked as Rehoboam, splits the nation in two and Jeroboam goes to the north, which ends up forming the nation of Israel. And Rehoboam takes the nation in the south, which is called Judah. And from the time of exile into Babylon, which is about 400 years from Rehoboam down to Josiah and a few more kings after Josiah, there's about 400 years of war and wickedness. In total, there's 20 Kings in the North in Israel, and there's 20 Kings in the South in Judah, 40 Kings. Out of 40 Kings, eight are considered good Kings. Selah, it's like, that stinks. And we're not talking about four year terms, eight year terms. We're talking about a King would go 30, 40, even 50 years on a throne. So you can imagine the level of wickedness that is just continually creeping in. Israel never has a good king. All the, the eight good kings are found in Judah throughout their history. And the way in which a king was decided to be good was these three attributes. A king was good if he worshiped God alone, if he showed humility and repented of the wickedness of the nation and anything that he had done, and that he also brought reform to the nation by tearing down any false idols that were put up by previous generations. That was considered a good king. And so we come to Manasseh and Josiah. And I just want to put up their bios, if I can break them down like this. Manasseh, his name means to forget, which is a fitting name because his father Hezekiah was considered one of the eight good kings. Josiah was the last of the eight good kings. He was number eight. There were kings after Josiah, but they were all wicked and they led the people into exile, into Babylon. Josiah's great-great-grandfather Hezekiah fit the criteria of a good team. And Manasseh willfully looked at his father, the way in which he modeled, the way in which he instructed, the way in which he submitted to God, he willfully looked at that and chose to forget the ways of God. And it says in, in verse three of 2 second Kings 21, it says that not only that, but Manasseh, he built up the altars that his father Hezekiah had torn down to the false gods. He not only built up new gods, but he took his time to reverse the the evil work that his father had torn down. He built it back up. And then again, just like Solomon, he reinstituted the child sacrificing God, Molech to the people. And it says of Manasseh, he actually sacrificed one of his sons. Josiah, it means God supports and God heals. I want to tell you the story of Josiah, but I want you to understand the framework of Josiah as well. Josiah's father, Ammon was a wicked king, just like his grandfather, Manasseh. He has multiple generations of wickedness. He has no frame of reference at all of what good looks like. So he starts his career like a wicked king where there's idols all over the place. He's just leading the way in which he he knew all he has is what his father put before him, what's been handed down, which is idolatry, wickedness, evil in the sight of God. I just wanna take a moment and just say, if you're here today and you don't, don't have the experience that I had of walking into my father, uh, giving a devotion or reading his Bible in the early mornings, if that's not your story, you say, Tyler, my father was a wicked man. He didn't love God. I just wanna say where our fathers have failed, God once again proves himself to be faithful. Just because you didn't have a dad in your household does not mean you will not be fathered and you don't have a spiritual inheritance because a spiritual inheritance is not given just because a father goes down and gives it to his son, but it's because a heart is humbled before God, our father. What you need is a responsive heart when you are confronted with the words of God. And that's what happens to Josiah. Josiah is sitting on his throne and as he's considering the nation, he goes, oh, that temple over there, the one to that, that the, the, the God of Israel, we need to do some repairs over there. So he commissions men to do repair, repair and it's fallen apart because nobody is following God. And while the workmen are doing their work, the high priest of that temple finds this dusty old book that is inscribed the law of, of the Lord, the law of God. And the high priest reads the book and then he says, I think Josiah, the king needs to read this book. And so he takes it to the king and he says, king, let me read you this book. And this is the response that Josiah had when he read the law of the Lord. It said, when the king heard the words in the book of the law, he tore his robe, which is a sign of repentance. And then he instructs his men. He says, Go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and all of Judah about what is written in this book that has been found. Great is the Lord's anger that burns against us. For what reason? Because those who have gone before us have not obeyed the words in this book. They have not acted in accordance with all that is written there concerning us. Part of what's written in the law is to take the wisdom of God and to pass it to the next generation. That's what Deuteronomy says. And he tears his clothes in repentance and he goes, there was a failure. I did not know. My father did not tell me as he ought to and his father before him, but I have now been convicted by the Holy Spirit of God and he tears his clothes in repentance. And Josiah in chapter 23, he goes on a tear of reformation and he begins to tear out every idol that he can possibly find. You need both repentance and reformation. Uh, This isn't gonna be up on the slides because I came across this. Last night, but it's it's important that we go here um, today. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. I'll read to verse 12. Paul's writing to the Ephesians church. He's writing in his generation, thousands of years after Josiah. And he says this to the church Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God. For what reason? so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not violence in the streets. It's not riots. But what is our, what is our struggle against? Hear this. It's against rulers. It's against authorities. And it's against powers in this evil world. And it's against spiritual forces in the heavenly realm. There's three things in that that I just want to highlight and bring it back into Josiah's life. He says, we as a church, we must stand firm against the devil's scheme. God, from the beginning of time before creation, has had a big picture grand purpose that he will see fulfilled. It it, it will not return to a void. He has a purpose. But the devil also has a scheme that's been going since Genesis 3. And it's a recycled scheme. It's a a new generation, but the exact same scheme, he is the father of lies. And he says, this scheme will express itself in two realities. It will express itself through wicked and evil leaders who have a spirit like Manasseh, who willfully decide to forget the ways of God. He says, we take a stand. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood and violence and mockery and provoking, but we do stand against anybody who willfully stands against God in his ways. We stand against rulers and authorities and any powers in this evil world. And we stand against spiritual forces. There is the work of the devil. And there's the work that the devil is doing through people who have the spirit of Manasseh. There are people right now in our generation that have a spirit of Josiah and a spirit of Manasseh. And there's a Holy Spirit of God who is at work through people with the spirit of Josiah. And there's an evil spirit like Molech. Who is working through this generation and those who follow a spirit of Manasseh? Moloch was the false God who sacrifices to children. We have the same demons, the same demonic forces that were at work in that day. They were at work in Paul's day. They were at work in Jesus' day when he was on earth, and they're at work today in our generation. The spirit of Moloch has a temple called Planned Parenthood, and he gives sacrifices to abortion. They call it gender reassignment. It's gender mutilation and it's gender castration on a generation. And the reason that this is a problem is because that, as we talk about multi-generation is killing generations. It is trying to quench out what God is doing. And there's a Holy spirit of God who's at war with this spirit. There are people like Josiah who are called to call people to repentance and there are people like Josiah who must reform and tear down idols that are being sacrificed to Moloch. I just want to pause because I know that can be startling. There is grace for anyone who would humble themselves before God. Yeah. And then, if you are here today and you've had an abortion or you're thinking about having an abortion, or you're a parent or a boyfriend or a husband who is trying to pressure someone to have an abortion. I want you to know like Josiah had grace because he didn't have a father. You have grace because anyone who comes to Christ, there is no condemnation for you. You can have grace. Not only will you have grace from God, but you will have refuge in his church. I just want to say, if you're a young woman here today and you've, you've either had an abortion, or you're thinking about having an abortion, would you come to the elders Men and women, you will find spiritual mothers who will love you and care for you. And you will find spiritual fathers who will stand in front of you and protect you and watch over you. You're not alone. You are not abandoned. But we are not going to give ourselves over to a spirit of Manessa who looks at our culture and chooses to willfully forget the things of God or gives child sacrifice to that evil spirit that's at work. Paul's the one who said it, not Josiah. Paul's the one who said, We're not wrestling with flesh and blood. We're wrestling with any authority, any leader who would align themselves with that spirit. And we are going to take a spirit of Josiah and any man and woman in us today. We are going to call for repentance. We're going to acknowledge where we need to repent and change. And we're going to absolutely give reformation and we're going to tear out idols from their roots. Gina. If we could just imagine for a moment, we've got my generation, my wife and I, and Nicole and I, we have two little girls, the next generation that's coming up. And to this side of us, Greg and Michelle, who are heading back from ministry time in Qatar, be praying for their travels, they're on this side. What has to happen, whatever generation you find yourself in, acknowledge and honor like Solomon did for David, acknowledge and honor what is happening in the previous generation. God is faithful in every generation, which means no matter how wicked a generation is, God, is, even though humanity is evil, God is always doing good and at work. So our responsibility in this generation is to look at the previous generation and go, what are the building blocks that God built in that generation? And those are the things that we bring into this generation and we choose to build upon. At the same time, in every generation, because we're imperfect men and women, there are idols continually coming up and popping up in every generation. So what has to happen is that we have to acknowledge the idols that are in our generation, acknowledge those that are in our father's generation, and we have to rip them out from the roots. That's reformation. Repent of our wickedness and reform. And here's why this is so important, because any idol like Solomon, any idol that we tolerate in our generation Will become a God in our children's generation and will cause sacrifices of our ga- grandchildren in their generation. The reason we can't just repent of our wickedness, but we must reform and pull out idols from the roots where we see them, and they're in every generation, is because if we tolerate it here, it will become a God that our kids are forced to worship in the next generation, and eventually our grandchildren will be sacrificed to such a God. God is at work through the generations though. He He will reject the proud. He will give grace and humility to the humble. And I just want to say once again, to the authorities and the rulers of darkness, God will give grace to those who humble, but he'll reject those. These are the words of Jesus. These are not the words of Tyler. Jesus said, as his disciples are bickering with arrogance about who's the greatest among them. Jesus pulls them aside and he pulls a child aside. And he goes, those who have humility like this child will be great in my kingdom. And then he says this though to him, anybody who causes a child like this to stumble, it would be better for them to put a noose around their neck with a millstone and to drown themselves in the sea. Those aren't Tyler's words, those are Jesus's words. God will exalt the humble, but he will reject the proud. God is at work with humility. He is doing good in the generations and has a promised Messiah and what brings us to Mary and Jesus. Mary and Jesus, I think it's fitting that Matthew and the gospels, the, the, the people of God go into exile for another 400, 600 years. The prophets aren't prophesying Hannah's prayer anymore. But then out of the darkness, Matthew and the gospel of Matthew, Matthew goes, you know where we need to start as I tell you about Jesus? We need to start with his genealogy. And just as I walked that through today, that's what Matthew does in the beginning of his gospels. And he goes, he goes and he highlights Mary. And it says in Luke chapter one, verse 48, Mary has promised a son like Hannah was promised Samuel. And she says about this incredible birth, she says that the Lord has been mindful of my humble estate, humility, and all generations will call me blessed because of it. So here's where I wanna, I wanna close and just land the plane. Here's, here's where we've just been. If we can pull up that next slide. We, we went from Hannah to Jesus, the lamb, and the grand plan, if you're saying, what's the grand purpose of God in that generation? It was redemption. He, he, He said, he's gonna exalt the humble. He's going to do good work, no matter how evil and dark the day is. And he is going to bring about a Messiah and a savior. This Messiah was bringing about redemption. God has the same master plan for this generation today, except there's a difference, not redemption, but the renewal of all things. We can go up to the next slide. From Jesus, the lamb, we are in the middle. This the gospels, acts, the epistles, the year 2023 and the book of Revelation. Jesus is promised just like he, was, he promised to Hannah that one day a Messiah is coming. He's promising to us that there is a King who's coming, but not Jesus, the lamb, but Jesus, the lion and conquering King. So this is where we close for now. God's grand purpose is renewal of all things, the gospel. As you consider your life purpose, how does that purpose fit in with God's purpose? He is renewing all things. And he wants to start with your life and your family and your generation. And he wants you to pass down that wisdom of renewal of all things to the next generation or until he tarries, but he is coming back as sure as he came for Hannah as a Messiah, he's coming for us as a conquering King. We must be a a, a people who honors the previous generation and the work that God has done. We must tear out idols and bring reformation where it's needed. And we must continually pass down the wisdom of God to the next generation because, in that, you find your part and you get swept up in the bigger picture of God. Can I pray for us? Indeed, Matt, yeah.